Greetings. This is your favorite Bible teacher, and I am now recording the second lecture in the spring quarter for the good folks who have met with me for the better part of seven years now at St. Teresa. You may be new to this lecture series because I've opened and begun a journey through the book of Revelation, and I'm aware that there was a snafu last week. In fact, the lecture that I recorded and thought that I had recorded in its entirety actually only began to record halfway through. So as I re-listened and was prompted to do so by a couple of you who had listened out there, I realized that I began the lecture in Matthew chapter 24 and I had not recorded the material uh, that I had laid as a general introduction. So today I'll go back and relay that general introduction and bring us back then to the point where we left off in Revelation chapter 1. So there'll be a bit of a review in that regard, but we are pressing forward uh, through chapters 1, 2, and 3, hopefully today. Remembering these lectures are supposed to last about 50 minutes, and so that's how long you can expect to hear my cheerful voice. So before we get started, let's pause as we always do and begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the technological marvel that allows us to gather together to read and study your word online. Please open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say, that in better understanding you, we may come to love you more deeply. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow truth in our hearts and awaken in us obedience to the faith. May we all be born again to new life and enter the fellowship of your one holy people. And grant this through the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Before I open and begin to lay that new introduction to the book of Revelation, a couple of comments. Life is going as well as could be imagined in this time of uh, social distancing. Diane and I are healthy and doing well. The kids are healthy and doing well also. The challenge to our oldest two, Jessica and Rebecca, is that they are not only full-time working moms, but now also in charge of homeschooling two out of their three children, respectively. They have also a four-year-old to contend with and a one-year-old to contend with. So that's making life quite challenging. Tonight, we are actually going to attempt, via Zoom, a family Seder meal. And again, this is the meal that is remembered in the Last Supper events. And I will detail and teach uh, the Seder to any and all interested in the family. We'll see how that goes. Uh, meanwhile, the kids remain relatively secure in place. Uh, they are all gainfully employed to date, although some have taken... Uh, percentage in salary cut, but are happy to have the work. So having said all of that, I want you to know that I really do enjoy putting these lectures together. And I'm not worried yet about uh, registration fees and that sort of thing. Let's get through the month of April and see where we are at the end of this statewide shutdown before we make a decision about how you might be able to support uh, the Bible class through your mail-in registration. But I do anticipate each day with uh, some degree of excitement sitting down and preparing these eight lectures uh, that I post, plus my ongoing series, The Gospel Comes to Life, which again, you find at the anchor.fm podcast site, so that you could at least hear reflection about the gospel reading for the coming Sunday. So having said all of that, we're ready to return to the revelation. Remember, we made, well, you didn't hear me make note of the fact last week that this is a singular revelation that's given to John. It is broken into three parts, and we'll make note of that dutifully as we work our way through the narrative. The first part is the introduction and then the first three chapters, which detail a commission given to John, the youngest of the twelve apostles, while 
on an island penal colony called Patmos. The island is still there today, situated perfectly in the Mediterranean, in the Aegean Sea. It houses a number of yacht establishments, uh, harbors, and uh, is a frequently visited biblical site uh, on cruises throughout the Mediterranean region. I've been there a number of times myself. Wouldn't mind living there now, but couldn't imagine the challenging conditions that John had been placed in by Roman directive, probably around the year 64, 65 to 66 AD. But more about that in a moment. The first three chapters are dedicated to a commission given to John to write letters to seven churches in his purveyance. That is, John extracted from his role as bishop in Ephesus, is directed by one of God's archangels to write letters, seven in number, to each of the angels in seven named churches. First to the church in Ephesus, then to the church in Smyrna, then to the church in Pergamum, then into the church of Thyatira, finally then into the churches of Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. That's the content of the first three chapters of the Revelation. Then everything changes, and we move into the revelatory section of the book of Revelation in chapter 4. This is the second part of the book of Revelation. And uh, you'll note the change in tone and tenor in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, after completing the assignment of writing the seven letters that will be sent from John to the pastors, the angels of those seven churches, the ones who deliver the message. The word angel means messenger, angelos in Greek. After this, in verse 1 of chapter 4, I looked, and there standing before me was a door open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. That is, after you have completed the work of writing the seven letters. So the second and longest section of the book of Revelation is chapters 4 through chapter 19. And chapters 4 through chapter 19 are the fulfillment of the predictive prophecies that Jesus issued in the year 32 AD that I detailed by looking at Matthew chapter 24, which is how last week's lecture open. Every aspect of every part of the vision in chapters 4 to 19 has therefore already been fulfilled. It's not speaking of events that will one day beyond our own time be fulfilled. They were all fulfilled within the historical time framework of the 40 years since the time Jesus spoke the words in Matthew chapter 24 until the year 72 AD. And obviously, John, incarcerated under house arrest sometime around the years 64 to 66 AD, would be well aware of this predictive prophecy of Jesus. And this is basically John's apocalyptic discourse. Remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24, the apocalyptic discourse, the temple is going to come down. In Mark's Gospel, again, an apocalyptic discourse, chapter 13, the temple is going to come down. In Luke's Gospel, combining chapters 19 and parts of chapter 21, again, predictive prophecy of apocalyptic doom by Jesus, the temple is going to come down. Remember, within the generation of those alive at that time, within the next 40 years. And it does. It was destroyed by the Romans, whole and entire, by the year 72 AD. That's the subject of Revelation chapters 4 to 19. And then, finally, Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22. Those depicted prophetic events, and we'll look at them in great detail, have not yet been fulfilled. And they are chilling to be sure. They make something like our pandemic seem like a spring day in the park. 
And we'll take a look at those three chapters, as well as the promise at the end of chapter 22 of a final restoration at the end of time. So three parts of the book of Revelation. The first, the opening chapters, which I'll begin to read in just a moment, which are very pragmatic and involve inspired writing by a bishop addressing the pastors in the main churches that are centralized around Ephesus. And then the vision itself, chapters 4 to 19, detailing events that you heard about last week when you began this lecture series in Matthew chapter 24, resulting in finally the destruction of the temple. And then chapters 20, 21, and 22, events that have yet to play themselves out in the course of human history. Now, returning, as I thought I did last week, to Revelation chapter 1, let me begin in chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Christ Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Well, that God gave him, meaning our author and the one who received these words, John. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. This, by the way, the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing to those who read it, and I'm going to show you as well a curse upon those who misinterpret its meaning. But first, the blessing. In verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Well, that's a blessing that reaches across the spans of time and uh, is efficacious even for you and I. Now, I'll also draw your attention to the end of this book we call the Revelation. In verse 18 of Revelation chapter 22, I warn, again John speaking, everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, and we will, if anyone adds anything to them, we won't. God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, we won't. God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So, from Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, to Revelation chapter 22 and its final verses, we have the detailed blessing and the possibility of curse, bookends that open and close the narrative. Finally, we need to note that when the books of the New Testament were ultimately assembled and 27, the number, was decided upon, it seems that the book of Revelation was going to be an outlier. And one of the arguments at that time around the year 400 or so A.D. Remember, the church gave us the scriptures. The scriptures didn't give us the church. Jesus promised the church, but the church didn't have a collection of texts called sacred and holy and canonized as a collection until around the year 390 or so A.D. Well, it was argued by church fathers that the book of Revelation should not be contained within that collection. And the arguments were twofold. First of all, they felt the text entirely too simplistic. Because remember, at that time, the images that were part of the apocryphal literature of the period were well understood and easily acquired by anyone who read the text. They weren't mysterious at all. And then secondarily, everything that John spoke of up until chapter 20, had already come to pass. Commissioned to write the letters, he wrote the letters. The letters went out to the angels of the churches, seven in number, the pastors, they read the letters, the churches repented and reformed. And then chapters 4 through 19 were promulgated, and they were fulfilled when the temple was destroyed 
by the Romans under the generalship of Titus, who will become after his father Vespasian, the emperor of Rome. Only chapters 20, 21, and 22 were yet to be fulfilled. However, the Holy Spirit won the day, and the revelation was included then in that collection of 27 books. And remember, there were others out there, plenty that could have passed muster, but these are the 27 that all Christians across all denominations have always embraced. There are no other books that some denominations honor and others do not. So let's keep that in mind. There was a time when this message was easily accessible and readily understood. Now, I come back to Revelation chapter 1. John, the bishop of Ephesus, who's been placed under house arrest by the Romans, by the way, released from that house arrest probably around the year 68 AD or so, when Nero commits suicide and Rome spins into civil war and generals vie against each other for the right to claim the throne of the deposed Caesar Nero, who did not name a successor. And this would have opened, effectively, the gates of his prison doors. But that's not where we are in Revelation chapter 1. John is on that island penal colony. And so John says to the seven churches in the province of Asia, which is central Turkey of our day, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, that is, the seven archangels. We know the names of three. Gabriel, the archangel of the events surrounding the prediction of and birth of the Messiah. Michael, the great archangel who defends Israel. And Raphael, the archangel we met in the book of Tobit. There are four others. So, grace and peace to you from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. John recognizes in that salutation that his purpose and plan is being revealed so that John now knows that given opportunity to be incarcerated alone on this island penal colony, God can speak to him in the spirit and the work that he has set for him to do can be accomplished. To him who loves us, in verse 5, and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And then combining two prophetic texts, first Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and then Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, John says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Now, I'll remind you that that is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. And that's very important because in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, we recognize the first prophetic vision of the Messiah. In Daniel 7, verse 13, in my vision at night, Daniel says, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, a man, a human male, coming with the clouds of heaven, meaning moving across the heavens toward God's throne. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He's in the throne room of God. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, again, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Meaning, what Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 24 about the destruction of the temple will shortly be seen by everyone. And when they see these events come to pass, they'll remember that Jesus predicted them 40 years earlier, and they'll hopefully come to faith in response. Even those, watch, who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. 
even those who pierced him. Manner of death, crucifixion, hands and feet, pierced A.D. 33, Zechariah chapter 12. In Zechariah chapter 12, we have this most amazing prophecy. I'm finding my way with you uh, to Zechariah chapter 12. And in Zechariah chapter 12, we read in verse 10 that I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. There'll be a spirit of hope. And they, watch now, will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. That's the text that is quoted by John in Revelation chapter 1. They will look on me, the one they pierced, and they will mourn for him. But again, remembering the story of Numbers chapter 21, that when serpents bit the Israelites and they were surely going to die, they only had to look at the bronze serpent, the image crafted of what was otherwise going to kill them in order to be saved. And we'll look on the one who we have pierced and know that his death has taken the place of our own. That's why the Catholic Christian community has always had an image of the body of Jesus on the cross, because we need to look upon the one who was pierced and mourn for him. It's through his death that we have life. Now back to Revelation chapter 1 in verse 8. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. I am the Almighty. And Jesus says, I'm the one who is to come in power at the end of time to judge the living and the dead, most certainly, but more pragmatically in fulfilled prophecy when you see everything you never thought imaginable happen in Jerusalem when the Roman armies surround the city and eventually destroy the temple. Now in verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Potmos. Because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, they were trying to shut me up. And they sent him away to this barren rock in the middle of the Aegean, now a wonderfully appointed harbor of the wealthy and uh, well-heeled in the region. But then, just a rock where he lived in a cave. And on the Lord's day, he says in verse 10, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches. The seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. In times long past now, sadly, when travel in Turkey was very easy to do, in two separate occasions, we made journeys with the Arizona Bible class and with Dr. Creasy as well, uh, to the seven churches of the Revelation. And when you make that journey through central Turkey, you visit each of these seven archaeological sites, the largest among them, Ephesus, the smallest, Philadelphia. And I'll recall uh, a time when we were able to visit each one of them, and I could teach then on each site each of the seven letters. It was wonderful. And perhaps one day, God willing, we'll be able to go back. In verse 12, John says, I then turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, meaning seven fiery figures standing erect. Uh, the, the cherubim, the celestial angels. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. There's our Daniel chapter 7, a human-looking figure, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. He sees Jesus. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. 
and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, not literally, but in the vision John had that particular Lord's day. Don't imagine the figure of Jesus with a sword in his mouth. The sharp, double-edged sword in his mouth are the words that he speaks that cut like a sharp, double-edged sword. You'll remember that in, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 12, or is it chapter 11? It might be chapter 12 or chapter 11, but the Word of God is a sharpened, two-edged sword. It is remiss of me not to remember that. Maybe it's chapter 4, verse 12. There it is. It wasn't chapter 12, verse 4. It was chapter 4, verse 12 of the book we call the letter to the Hebrews. In verse 12 of Hebrews, chapter 4, for the Word of God is living and active. The Word of God, the teaching of God, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes or the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Word of God, living, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So that image of the double-edged sword is what we're referring to in Revelation chapter 1 in verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. He has a word to speak. His face, verse 7, 16, was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first. I'm the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades, which means not to threaten you, but to say to Satan, you have no more say any longer. I hold the keys. No one's going to be chained to death any longer. No one's going to live in fear of death any longer. So in verse 19, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. That is, of course, what you have seen, what is now, what I'm going to tell you to write. And then in chapters 4 through 22, what will take place later? The mystery of the seven stars you're wondering that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And we're going to read that, the messengers or the pastors who deliver a message on a weekly basis. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches burning brightly, each one protected by an angel in heaven. We'll call that a guardian angel. So, we begin. We're going to write to the largest church first, and each letter will reveal particular challenges in that local faith community. And John would be aware of these because he's the bishop, he's the presbyter, he's the overseer, and he was in Ephesus with Mary, the mother of Jesus. He hosted Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's well acquainted with Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke, and the book of Acts. The man is in the know. So he's writing now. And how does he have writing implements? Well, because under house arrest, you are allowed services provided for you by your friends and confidants. They will feed you and clothe you and provide writing materials for you. You're not incarcerated facing adjudication, which would lead to a sentence of either death or case dismissed. You're there for an undetermined length of period, and the Romans are not going to take care of you. This isn't ancient Egypt. There is no jailer who's responsible for your care and fetting. All right, so keep that in mind. So John is told to write to the angel, the messenger, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. These are the words of him, 
who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands, meaning these are the words of Jesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Remember in Judaism, deeds, 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 always trump creeds, right? Don't tell me what you believe. Don't, don't sign a document saying what you believe. Live it. Let me see your faith in action. I know, he continues, giving them credit, that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false because there are those who are taking advantage of naive Christians claiming to be apostles but are watering down the message of the gospel, saying that Jesus has already returned, insisting that men in the early Christian community made up in Ephesus primarily of Gentiles need to be circumcised. And what the Lord is saying to the acting pastor in Jerusalem is that you've done a good job sleuthing that out. In verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. The result of your efforts have proved fruitful. Yet I hold this against you. You've been around for a while now, and you've forsaken your first love. I want you to remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, if you do not turn, if you do not return, then I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now again, what kind of wonderful advice that I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love and you've forgotten the height from which you have fallen. You have forgotten the passion that you had at the beginning of your relationship with me. And I need you to see that rekindled because if you don't, I'm going to have to remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor you hate or you've disassociated yourself with the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans, early heretics that were too focused on one aspect of the faith tradition and not the whole. It's unclear exactly what the Nicolaitans were involved in, more than likely some sort of a Gnosticism, which means that they were moving forward with the idea that the spirit mattered more than the body and the spiritual realm more important than the corporeal. Therefore, you didn't hold any concern about what you did with your body or to your body or with or to the bodies of anyone else, because it's really about the spiritual that we want to focus. And, and again, it's a balance that we have to strike between the spirit and the corporeal body, mind, and spirit in balance. That's probably one of the beginning heresies of these folks called Nicolaitans. Now, in verse 7, he concludes the letter by writing, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember that tree of life is a tree that in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat, and that's why they were expelled from the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, the Lord is wondering what he's going to do. Let me see if I can find that for you. Yes. Uh, in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, the, verse 22, the Lord God said, the man, Adam, has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He controls the knowledge that gives him insight between the distinction between good and evil, but he's too immature to really hold on to it. He doesn't have a brain yet formed to a level to make good moral decisions. So he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from, here it is, the tree of life and eat and then live forever. 
He needs to grow. He needs to mature. He needs to increase his knowledge base before he's going to be allowed in this narrative, right? To take and eat from the tree of life and live then forever. He's too young, effectively, for this blessing. So the Lord God banished him, and of course, Eve as well, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which they and he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, guardian angels, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. Right? So if you get this teaching, you understand then in Revelation chapter 2, and verse 7, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will open the gates of Eden. Again, by the way, aside for your consideration, in the Apostles' Creed, and I teach this quite often, you know, we're often confounded, confused when we, as a community of faith, say that Jesus suffered, died, and was buried, descended into hell, and then on the third day, rose again. Jesus did not descend into hell. What would be the purpose of descending into hell? You could say, well, perhaps to extract from the clinging hands of Satan the keys of Hades. That's a possibility. But the early Christians understood from a Jewish faith perspective that those righteous who died because of their good deeds were honored in death in a place of rest and repose. It's called the bosom of Abraham, where the patriarchs and, and countless billions of other people awaited the announcement that the gates of paradise, which had been blocked by that fiery cherub in, in Genesis chapter 3, would finally be opened. And so when Jesus descended to the netherworld, which is really what the creed maintains, not hell, but Hades, the place called Sheol, the place of shadows, the place of coolness and comfort, he announces to the righteous, everyone now has access back into Eden. And that is the way the book of Revelation is going to end, with a memory of the tree of life. Now, in chapter 2 of Revelation and verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is modern Ismail in Turkey. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again, obviously Jesus. I, he says, know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, was there a synagogue of Satan? No, there's no possibility that there were Satan worshipers in Smyrna, but there were men and women in synagogues who made sport of false accusation. Remember, the word Satan means to accuse. We meet the fictive character Satan in Job chapter 1, who is coursing throughout the earth. I should remind you of that, just not mention it. In Job chapter 1, it's a, it's a wonderful opening uh, sometimes it takes a while to find Job. There it is. Uh, after the book of Esther, we remember the scene. Well, it's a courtroom. And uh, in verse 6 of Job chapter 1, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. This is a fictive narrative. This is a story that's told to teach a lesson. So Satan can come with the other angels. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. Why, he is blameless and upright. He is a man who fears God and shuns evil. Well, Satan's reply is why he's called Satan. He makes accusation. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But 
stretch forth your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said, again, this is a story. This didn't really happen. It's a theatrical performance in point of fact. The Lord said to Satan in verse 12, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and effectively wiped out the entire family of Job, save for Job and his wife. Satan appears in Job chapter 1 as someone who makes accusation. So, and come back to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know of the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Just a gathering of people who make false accusation against you. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Persecution was promised you. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, whenever anyone is imprisoned in Jewish religious thought and suffers persecution for ten days, you're automatically reminded of the prophet Daniel. In Daniel's first chapter, the new exile arriving in Babylon, is taken and put in prison and challenged with a test. The test begins in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, because he's presented food that his kosher life will not allow him to eat. In chapter 1 of Daniel, verse 8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. The royal food and wine had been dedicated to pagan gods before it appeared before Daniel. No matter how good it looked, he wasn't going to eat it. Now, God had caused the official, verse 9, to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your own age? The king would then have my head because of you. But Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over himself and his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days and... In verse 15, at the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who had ate the royal food. That was the test of ten days. And Daniel and his three companions passed it. So again, coming back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, Satan is about and will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for ten days, but be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let Daniel be your inspiration. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. And we'll see at the end of the book of Revelation, the second death is final. That's the death you don't get out of. The first death, our physical death, we all pass through that, save Enoch, Moses, Elijah, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. But on the whole, those outliers, the exception, everyone else will pass through that portal of death to final judgment of eternity, either with the Lord or without. And then in chapter 12, I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, which is just north of ancient Ephesus. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword in his mouth. That is the word of God. That is Jesus. Remember, John, our author here, identifies Jesus in the opening of his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word 
was God. This connection between Jesus and the Word is something that carries over from John chapter 1 to the Revelation's opening chapters. Now, to the church in Pergamum, or to the pastor there, in verse 3, Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. Now, in ancient Pergamum, there was actually a crafted statue of the god Zeus with a serpent-like tail, one of the many idols, imagining what Zeus would have looked like. And uh, because of that, many in the early church, both Jewish and then Gentile followers of Jesus, saw that image as the throne of Satan, because it represented Rome. It represented the pagan practices of the Greco-Roman Empire, Zeus, you know, someone who claimed divine authority but was not divine. And he had that serpent's tail. So he was sort of emblematic of the devil. But despite all of that, they're praised. You did not acquiesce. You remain true to my name in verse 13. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where the throne of Satan exists, where Satan lives. So there were martyrs that had suffered valiantly, had died bravely, and the witness of those deaths is remembered here. Nevertheless, in verse 14, I do have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, that, remember, from Numbers chapter 25, who taught Balak, to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality with Moabite women. And likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, again, probably the early Gnostics. Balaam, a prophet for hire who was to curse the Israelites, was unable to do so, but found a way to encourage Moabite women to offer themselves as sexual partners to Israelite men in exchange for the men participating in ritual sacrificial offerings to their pagan gods. And it nearly worked. And you can read Numbers chapter 25 to re-familiarize yourself with that story. So again, even in the midst of the church of Pergamum, where men like those who die martyrs are giving a glowing example of the faith, you have to be aware that there are those who will compromise, like those who follow the teaching of Balaam, and like those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, that is, with my word. Thinking, again, along the lines of Gnosticism with the Nicolaitans. Remember, it's all about the spirit and the advance in the spiritual world, so the body has no meaning. Therefore, you can do with it and with whomever you wish, whatever delights the senses, right? And that would be also what Balaam was able to entice the Moabite women into, offering themselves sexually to Israelite men in order to debase them so that they would not honor their covenants. So these two influences are highly sexualized and obviously were effective in and around Pergamum. But but Jesus says, be aware of that. Be cognizant of that and don't fall prey to those temptations. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give, watch now, some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Hidden manna, more than likely a reference to the early Christians gathering in secret to celebrate the Lord's Supper and the distribution of the new manna, the manna from heaven, Jesus present in the bread, that is, the Eucharist. And since they gathered in secret, there needed to be a way to identify authentic Christians, right? And that would be the secret handshake 
of the time. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who received it. If you attended a public event in the Roman Empire and needed to purchase in advance a ticket, it often resulted in you being given a stone with the seat number effectively inscribed on it. Now, that would be the common practice. Here, obviously, they would use white stones with your Christian name inscribed upon it, your new name written upon it, known only to him who received it as evidence that you were, in fact, among the initiated. And therefore, the early Christian church and their secret gatherings couldn't be infiltrated. That's the meaning of being allowed access to the hidden manna, the Eucharist. And given a white stone with a new name, your baptismal name, effectively written upon it, so that you then are recognized authentically as a member of the church in Pergamum. Now, that brings me to the end of my allotted 50 minutes. I need to stop here and close with a word of prayer. And so, Father, we do thank you for the gift of our churches, and we pray for our messengers, our pastors, the messages that they'll deliver. We pray online this weekend. We'll bless and, 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 and inspire. We pray that you'll bring us back together quickly uh, in due course and order and deal finally with this pandemic issue. In Jesus' name, we pray. And before I bid you adieu, please allow me one more opportunity to remind you what a great student you are. Thank you for taking time to listen to this lecture. And again, this is a lovely opportunity to be able to share it with others because who else is going to teach through the book of Revelation like this, systematically reading and commenting as we go? You have advantage, have been with me for so many years. Share that advantage with others. And never forget, you can also go to the same website and listen to my gospel reflections in advance of this next week's liturgy. Well, that's all the teacher has time to do and can do for now. So until next week, goodbye and God bless.